turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We'll be looking at verse 14 today as we look at the seventh of the Ten Commandments. As you turn there, I want to thank you for your prayers for our teams over this month who've been in Poland. Uh, we have 14 folks who are on their way home now. Uh, they'll be arriving in Louisville in about 9 hours and 24 minutes and maybe 30 seconds or so, but who's counting? Uh, some of us are very excited about those teams coming back. Uh, out of the 14, four of them are Carwiles. Uh, I love all four, but there's one particularly I'm very excited about coming back, uh, and that is my wife. And so uh, several people asked Caroline this morning if she missed her mom, and she said, yes, do you miss your brother and your sisters? No, uh, but uh, we are both excited to have Mama and Parker and the girls home as well. So you can continue to pray that they would have safe travel. You can t continue to pray uh, for fruit as they've been ministering there in Gdansk, Poland. Uh, pray for the children who came out to that VBS, uh, many of whom were hearing the gospel for the very first time. Pray for their families. Uh, they had a cookout with their families that last night that they were there for VBS. Uh, you can pray as well for that teen camp. Uh, one of the encouraging things uh, for my family, and I'm sure for many of you too, as we've been involved in Poland for a number of years now, is seeing uh, children who have grown and now become teens and have come to faith in Christ, and, and many of them now are actually leading in this church uh, who came to faith through these outreaches that our church has been a part of. So uh, we are thankful for that and would ask that you continue to pray for Second Baptist Ch uh, Church Gdansk there and our partnership with them. Uh, today we're going to be continuing, as I said, our study of the Ten Commandments with the Seventh Commandment. And so uh, I want to read that in the context of the Ten Commandments. I'm going to read for us Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 14. So out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, if you would stand together. As I read this text for us, remembering that this is given uh, to God's people who spent centuries in slavery in Egypt... God has rescued them from their slavery. He is now taking them to the land of promise. And as I've mentioned many times, God is not just concerned with getting His people out of Egypt. He is concerned with getting Egypt out of His people. And so He gives Him His law, His word, as part of that sanctification in their lives. So we begin here at verse 1 in Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. If you would pray with me. 
Father, I pray that you might do a work through the power of your Holy Spirit. These moments that we have to look at this word, that you would reveal the truth of it to us, help us to see and respond to the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would call each of us today to repentance and faith. And we ask this in the name of Christ our King. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to Exodus 20 again, I want to call to mind a passage from the book of Proverbs. As you may know, the book of Proverbs is a book of wisdom. And in Proverbs 29, verse 18, we're giving this word of wisdom. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. This verse is quoted often from the King James and New American Standard where it says, where there is no vision, the people perish. It's often used to promote the need for leadership, for vision in the church today. And I think those are good points, but they can miss easily the principal point because the word here in the Hebrew is prophetic vision. It means revealed word. What's being told to us in Proverbs 29.18 is that, that where there is no word of revelation from God, where there is no revealed word from God, people cast off restraint. As one version says, people run wild. See, God has given us His Word for great purpose, and when we choose not to live under His Word, then there is no restraint. And friends, as we look to our world today, we certainly see evidence of this, don't we? We see a people who have so quickly abandoned the truth of God's Word and run away from God's Word, that they have run wild, that there is no restraint. That as the Scripture tells us, people do what is right in their own eyes. Unfortunately, the Scripture also tells us for those who do that which is right in their own eyes, the end is death. And we have a people who do what they feel is wise in their eyes, but they reject the word of the Lord in the midst of that. And I think we see that very clearly as we come to this seventh commandment. This commandment, you shall not commit adultery. It reminds us of the revelation that God has given us, the revealed word of God all the way back in creation where we see God's covenant mandate that He gives not just His covenant relationship with man, but the covenant that they're to have with one another. As God creates marriage between a husband and a wife, and then in the context of that covenant of marriage, gives them physical intimacy together. That is God's creation and God's design, but we live in a culture that has all that rejected that, and now has no restraint, has no rules. Each does what is acceptable to Him and Him alone in His own eyes, or as the mantra of our day goes, the heart wants what the heart wants. You can't help who you love. I just want to be happy. Certainly God would want me to be happy. And this is especially true when we start to go into the area of physical intimacy between two people with the Word of God and say, no, God has given us parameters. God has given us revelation. God has given us design and creation. And in this design, He has said that physical intimacy is to be within the confines, within the parameters of a covenant marriage relationship between a husband and between a wife. 
We live in a culture where if you make that argument, you're viewed as archaic, old-fashioned. That's ancient ideas with no real value for today. Because our culture today has cast aside the truth and has cast aside restraint. But it's not just the culture. So often, friends, this is exactly what we find in the church today. This is what we find among those who profess belief in Christ. We find those who have cast off biblical teaching in this area and have accepted cultural teaching in this area, which basically tells you just do whatever you want to do. Do what makes you happy. Again, the heart wants what the heart wants. And in this context, God gives this word to His people that says, no, this is not an old-fashioned idea. He says, no, I'm not some universal killjoy. He has given us this instruction for a reason. And I hope that as we look to this text today, we might more clearly see that. Because just as we've seen in the other commandments, each commandment teaches us something about the character of God, about the heart of man, and ultimately points us towards Christ as we look at how Christ transforms each of these commandments, including this seventh one. And so I want to begin with that first question we've been using for each of these commandments. What does this commandment teach us about the character of God? And we see this, point one there in your notes. God created marriage and intimacy for His glory and for our good. God created marriage and intimacy for His glory and for our good. Just as we have with so many commandments, to, to better understand this, you have to go back to creation. You have to go back to the beginning. And as I've shown before, we look in Exodus 1 there and we have that that picture, that overview of creation. And God creates all things. And God creates man. And He tells man to be fruitful and and to multiply. And God then rests. And then we come to Genesis 2. And God gives us a, a more specific, detailed understanding of what took place when He created man. It's important that when we talk about marriage and we talk about intimacy, that we begin with a foundation of Genesis 2. That's why when I meet with couples who are engaged to be married, I I go to this passage. That's why when I am a part of a wedding ceremony, I, I read this passage because in order for us to understand marriage as God designed it to be, we have to look to the marriage that God designed. See, marriage wasn't something that man came up with along the way. And marriage was something that was created by God for His glory and for our good. Listen to this part of what we see here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And he goes on to say, verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man while he slept. He took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
We learned so much about marriage as God intended it to be here. We see that this principle of permanence, that when a man and a woman, they, they leave their parents and they come together, that the Scripture tells us here that they become one, that they are bound together. The word here literally means they are bound. They are, they are glued. That There's a permanence there. Not just there, that there, there's a oneness there. There's a principle of oneness here. In fact, the word used to say that they should become one flesh is the word God uses when He says, I, the Lord, God am one God. That, that same term that God uses to explain the unique relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Spirit our triune God, that, that oneness in the Trinity is the word that's used here in the Hebrew to describe when a husband and a wife come together and they are one. And there's a principle of acceptance here. We see that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were transparent. And they unconditionally accepted one another. And it's important to recognize these principles because then when we come to Exodus 20 verse 14 and we read God's instruction against adultery you shall not commit adultery we can better understand that that adultery goes at the heart of these very principles that god created marriage for adultery is a breach of the one flesh relationship of marriage it's breached when a husband or a wife or both goes outside of marriage and pursues intimacy from someone else it violates the permanence and the oneness and the acceptance that God created and intended for in marriage. It breaks this bond. And contrary to what our culture says, there are no clean breaks in this area. You might imagine it this way. If this morning you were to go home and Caroline and I have been getting our school supplies together, and so maybe as you have some school supplies in your house, for some of you, you've got some construction paper. So picture this. If you were to take a purple piece of construction paper and a yellow piece of construction paper, and then you were to squirt glue all over that and, and stick those two pieces together, that they, they would be bonded together. Now let me ask you, what, what's going to happen when you come back the next day and you try to separate those pieces of paper, is that going to be a clean break? No, what's going to happen? On that purple, you're going to have what? You're going to have pieces of that yellow, and that yellow, you're going to have pieces of that purple. See, God intended physical intimacy in the context of marriage because He intended it to be a, a permanent bonding of oneness. And when we take it outside of that context and we start to apply it in other areas and, and we lessen it, and we pretend, no, we can have it here and here and here and here and just clean breaks, but they don't happen that way, do they? And so God warns us in His Word. He is protecting us in His Word. As He says clearly to us, you shall not commit adultery. It's a breach of this one flesh relationship that's intended for marriage. God created this covenant for a purpose. And it's not just so that there might be intimacy and oneness between these two people. He, he, he creates it as a picture of something even greater than marriage. 
So when God forbids adultery, it's a very serious thing because He's not just talking about the covenant relationship between a husband and a wife. He's talking about what that covenant relationship exists to illustrate and to exemplify. And we read about that in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians 5, we have Paul writing to the church at Ephesus and he's speaking here to husbands and wives. He gives great Great biblical input for marriage, but in it, he helps us to see what what marriage is intended to exemplify. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present that the church to himself was splendor without spot or wrinkle, any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we're members of his body. You see this? What God's doing here is he's not just talking about a husband and a wife. He's talking about something much greater. He's talking about Christ and the church. He's talking about God's covenant relationship with his people. And he says marriage is a picture of this. He says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Again, hear this. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound but I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so what God does here is He gives us this picture and this understanding that that, that marriage, this relationship between a husband and a wife and the intimacy within it, it exists solely to exemplify an eternal promise of the covenant relationship that God has with His people. And so this seventh commandment, it calls us to faithfulness in marriage, but it also reminds us that we're called to covenant faithfulness with God. That's why we have this description so often of God's people throughout the Old and the New Testament, that they are an adulterous people. That term is not just saying that they have violated or breached that covenant in their marriage, it's saying they've breached that covenant with God. I mean, think about the picture we have here of the people when they're in Exodus. What do they do? The, the people there are tempted to bow down and worship other gods. The, the people here are tempted to be an adulterous people. Think about what Jesus deals with as He comes and begins to, to remind people of the truth of God's Word to fulfill these messianic promises. How does He refer so often in the Gospels to the people He encounters? You adulterous people. You, you evil and adulterous generation, he calls them. And he's not just saying they violated that covenant in their marriage. He's saying they have violated that covenant with God. It's what James is writing of in James 4 where he says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity to God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He says, you adulterous people. And so in the seventh commandment, we have this very clear understanding that God is speaking to His people. He's saying, you need to be faithful. You need to have covenant faithfulness and fidelity with one another 
intimacy is reserved for the context of this marital relationship between a husband and a wife. But with that, he's also reminding them that they need to be faithful to him. Because God is 100% faithful. But what did we sing earlier? He will hold me fast. Friends, there's great reason to rejoice when we can sing that, isn't there? Not, not I will hold Him fast, because friends, we have a very loose grip. But that He will hold me fast, that my faith does not rest in the strength of my grip. But our faith today rests in the power of His. And the promise of His. And the faithfulness of God to us. Friends, if, if the fruition of our faith was based on how faithful we are as a people, there would be nothing to sing about today. We are a wayward people. We are so easily distracted. Our hearts go after so many other things. But we're here today because we rest in the promises of God and God's Word reminds us of His faithfulness to us. It reminds us that He's given us good things, marriage and intimacy for for goodness and for His glory. And yet, we, we struggle to experience that goodness because we struggle so often to be faithful. This commandment not only teaches us about God, it teaches us about man. And so we'll look to that next point. What does this commandment teach us about the heart of man? And it reminds us of this, point two, that sin distorts God's design for marriage and intimacy. Sin distorts God's design for marriage and intimacy. And so God has designed... Marriage to be one of fidelity and faithfulness and He has promised good things and blessing from that. He's intended physical intimacy to be held in that context. And yet how sin distorts that and twists that is to say that God is just this universal killjoy. Again, what does our culture say? That the heart wants what the heart wants. Well, That's true. The question is, what is it that the heart really wants? And according to the Bible, the heart wants sin. When you take away the revealed Word of God, we are a people unrestrained. And when we are a people unrestrained, we no longer feel shame even for the sin that we are involved in. And we live in a culture today, specifically when we look at this issue of adultery, where there's really, there's not a lot of shame around it. There's just expectation that it's going to happen. And in fact, there's actually a celebration of it at times and an encouragement towards us. We live in a culture now where, where commercially adulterous people are targeted because they're a demographic. I read not long ago about multiple greeting card companies, multiple greeting card companies, who are now offering lines of greeting cards for people who are in or seeking adulterous relationships. One company offers what they title their mistress card collection. And they say that this primarily is for adulterers celebrating their affair-versary. 
The one card reads this way. Roses are red, violets are blue. Forget that I'm married, I'm hitting on you. Now here's a word of confession. There have been times when I didn't read greeting cards very well when I bought them. You ever done that? You, you bought something, you didn't quite read it, and then there's a little awkwardness. We had some good friends who, every time we were reminded of this, their child went on a field trip, and he wanted to bring his parents something home, and so he saw this little uh, you know, refrigerator magnet, and he thought it was real nice, and he brought it home. and he, he thought it said, God bless our noble home. What it really said was, God bless our mobile home. And they didn't live in a mobile home. And it helps to read those things. And unfortunately, it's not just kids that miss it. Sometimes it's parents, adults, whoever we do. And so there's been times when I've had to reread the card. I just gave my wife and go, oh, yeah, it's you know, meant to buy a birthday card that says congratulations on your pregnancy. We're not pregnant, by the way. That can be awkward. But imagine the awkwardness of giving someone a card that said, roses are red, violets are blue, forget that I'm married, I'm hitting on you. It was nice when that wasn't even an option to make that mistake on the card aisle. That's not the case anymore. In fact, it goes beyond that. One other card is for people who lament that they're having to spend the holidays with their family. It pictures a picture of a family during a holiday meal and they're all sitting together. But then the subtext reads this. While I'm gathering with them, I'm thinking about you. We live in a culture that tells us that this concept, this idea, this adultery will fulfill you and make you happy and give you something that you're missing. The heart wants what the heart wants. And friends, while these greeting card lines may be new, this, this sin is not new. This temptation is not new. In fact, we have a, a play-by-play of it in the Scripture. Proverbs chapter 7. In Proverbs chapter 7, we've got a picture here of Solomon looking out. You might hear people refer to today as they like to, to people watch. We've got Solomon people watching. In fact, what he tells us in Proverbs chapter 7 is this. He says, for at the window of my house, I've looked out through my lattice, and I've seen among the simple, I've perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Here Solomon is looking out over his kingdom and, and something catches his eye and it's this young man and he obviously doesn't have a higher opinion of him. Here, here's a young man lacking sense. Why would he say that? Well, he goes on to describe why. He says that young man lacking sense passing along the street near her corner. Taking the road to her house. And the twilight in the evening at the time of night and darkness and behold, a woman meets him dressed as a prostitute wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market and at every corner she lies in wait. 
Solomon goes on to describe how this woman has a husband, but this husband's gone away on a journey, and so she is now inviting this young man into her home, into intimacy with her. But but then Solomon gives us something that the romance novels and the movies and the TV shows of our day that, that romanticize this, something they leave out. He says this, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. And all at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, so he does not know it will cost him his life. Solomon here just he just gives truth. He says that, that which is luring this young man, that, that which lures a person into this adulterous relationship that they don't realize what they're walking into. And so he says, wake up. Before the arrow pierces your liver. We see similar terminology described in James 1 where James is describing the process where we come into sin. It says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. In the Greek here, James is using terms that we can also identify with fishing terms. And that makes sense to me because I like to fish. I'm a fisherman. I like to trout fish. And something that I've experienced in trout fishing is when you're at a clear stream and you can see the fish, then you can kind of float your bait right up there in front of that fish. And sometimes you'll watch and the fish will see that bait and they'll kind of swim close to it, but then something looks off and they'll just turn and go the other way. But then other times, you'll, you'll put that bait right there in front of that fish in such a way where, where it's so enticing. It's so tempting for them that they desire it. Maybe they tell their buddies, the heart wants what the heart wants. You know, I want that food and what happens they swim over there they bite down on it and as they do this hook pierces them and somebody happy on the other end like me reels them in two words that didn't go together in my house growing up catch and release we ate them fried grilled, baked, just apply heat in some way and butter and salt and pepper, and you eat it. So just think about this process for a second. James is describing it. He's saying, we're, we're, we're the fish. And we're swimming and we see something that looks good to us and it looks good to the eye. And we want it and we desire it. But little do we know when we sink our teeth into it that 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 hook is going to pierce us. And we're dead. 
Solomon says he does not know it will cost him his life. James says when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. But, this too can be a comfortable commandment. This too can be one of those commandments, kind of like the sixth commandment, do not murder, where we, we read it and we think, but when I, I'm okay here. They've been married for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years and not committed adultery. Got a good track record. Been faithful. I'm doing good. And that is good. We should celebrate that. But Jesus has a way of taking that which is comfortable for us and making it very uncomfortable. And that's exactly what he does in Matthew chapter 5. Now I'll read that text to you again. We read it earlier. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And so that's the statement. There's people probably there like this morning saying, alright, done good, check that one off. Bring on the next one. No, Jesus goes deeper, doesn't he? He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Uh-oh. And then he tells us this. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than you, your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Well, what is Jesus saying here? Well, well, first, let's go back to what he says about adultery. He says here very clearly, uh, adultery is a heart issue. It's not just the external we need to be concerned about. He, he internalizes this. He says it's not just a physical sin. It's what goes on even in our minds. I saw a disturbing headline last week. It read this. New artificial intelligence can read your mind. And I'll tell you why it disturbed me. Because I don't want anything to read my mind. I don't want you to know what's in my mind all the time. I don't want you to know what's in my mind right now. Do you want me to know what's in your mind right now? Do you want artificial intelligence to plug you into a computer and broadcast all your thoughts for the last 24 hours to the world? Anybody want to sign up for that focus group? This news story talked about how scientists are making breakthroughs and now they're on the cusp of artificial intelligence being able to decode Complex human thoughts just by measuring brain activity and getting closer to actually being able to read and broadcast what is in your mind and mine. I don't think a lot of people are going to be signing up for that. <laughs> and why is that? Well, it's because of sin, isn't it? See, because of sin, things go through our mind that, that, that we don't even intend to think about. We, we don't want to think about. We don't even want them going into our mind. There's stuff that has come into my mind at times, that has made me question if I'm even saved or not. 
How can a believer even think something like that? And I'm guessing I'm not alone there. The Scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what we see is as a result of sin and depravity, what we have wicked things that go through our mind. Now, I'm not talking about everything that we act on. I'm just saying, just, just the thought. And Jesus here says, if you've even thought about this, you've committed adultery. And so Jesus takes the standard here and, and so many of us who think, well, I'm doing good. I got this one. He goes, no, 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 no. And He raises it so extremely high that we all find ourselves under it and deserving eternal death and hell because of it. The wages of sin is death. Fortunately, that's not all that Jesus does with this commandment. Because if it were, there'd be no hope for us. See, what Jesus does here is He, he helps us to see that, that even the things we thought we were good at we aren't as good as we thought we were. And we desperately need something more than our works. We need His. And that brings us to this final point point in question how does jesus transform this commandment well point three jesus makes purity possible by giving us a new heart again i call your attention to matthew chapter five where jesus makes that troublesome statement if your your right eye causes you to sin tear it out and throw it away and if your right hand causes you to sin cut it off and throw it away so what do we do with that i don't see a lot of eye patches this morning Everybody do me a favor, just put your hands up. I'm, we're not getting Pentecostal, I'm just asking, put your... Alright. I got one in a cast. I'm assuming he wasn't trying to cut it off. So, what does that mean? Are we a bunch of hypocrites? Are we a bunch of people who don't obey the Word? He says, if your eye causes you to sin, boom, gone. If your hand, cut it off. But remember what Jesus says. He says here, if you looked with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery not in your hand or in your eye, in your heart. See, the issue is, even if we all had on eye patches and we had no hands, we would still be capable of great sin. Blind people who are disfigured can still sin. Jesus is not telling us that the eye and the hand are the culprit. He's telling us that our heart is the issue. And so what do we desperately need? We need that heart removed and we need a new one put in its place. And friends, that's exactly what the Gospel promises to do. In fact, that's the picture of the Gospel that we have throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament speaks of this, this new covenant and the promises of the new covenant. And so we read things like Jeremiah chapter 31 that talks about that this day that this new covenant would come. And he says this, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
God is speaking here in the context of an adulterous people. In fact, He's speaking to His people as those who have abandoned and forsaken Him. And yet He says a day is coming when the law is going to be written on their hearts where no longer, He says, shall one teach his neighbor because they're going to know the Lord. God's going to write it on their hearts. So, so how does He do that? Well, what good does it do for God to write His law on an old, dead heart of stone? Well, that's not what He does. Ezekiel 36 tells us more about this new covenant. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and carefully obey my rules. So here's, here's why so many of us struggle in the church today. We're trying to live a new life with a dead heart. It doesn't work that way. God says in order for us to live a new life, we first need to have a new heart. In order to have that new heart, something needs to happen to our old heart. And that's where the Gospel comes into play. Because Jesus says, if you'll confess that He is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, that you'll be saved. And when you're saved, God gives you a new heart, a believing heart, a heart that desires to please and to serve Him. Only God can bring about that transformation. Only God can do this kind of surgery on His people. And it's what we desperately need. In order to follow this seventh commandment, we need to understand how Jesus radically transforms it. You shall not commit adultery reminds us of our need for marital faithfulness and fidelity. We find so easily that we can be unfaithful in our marriage, not just with another person, but so many other things can, can be what gains our affection. Some of us, our mistress is our job. Some of us, it's a, it's a television screen or a computer screen. And the seventh commandment calls us to repent of that and return to fidelity and faithfulness in our marriage as God intended it to be. But it also reminds us of the need to be faithful in our relationship with God. It reminds us that we are a wayward people. It reminds us that we so often wander. It reminds us we so often buy into what the culture says that follow your heart. And yet the Scripture says we can't even discern our heart and the heart is full of wickedness. And so if you find yourself today struggling with faithfulness with God, struggling to obey God and believe God, that, that can be an issue of unfaithfulness, of infidelity in our relationship with Him. And so wherever you find yourself today, the, the call for all of us is the same. And I'll leave you with this. 1 John 1.9 if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.
Do you want to be cleansed? Do you want to be new? Do you want to be forgiven? Then repent and trust in Him. And as you struggle and as you fall and as you fail, repent and trust in Him. And when you feel like you're doing really well and then you open up the Word and realize, wait, the bar is much higher, repent and trust in Him. You need not live under the burden of sin any longer because Christ indeed has set us free and called us to repentance and faith. But friends, if you would stand together as we pray and as we respond to His Word together this morning. Father God, we come to You in the name of Christ. And Lord, I I thank You that, that where we have been unfaithful, Christ has been perfectly faithful. Where we have been disobedient, Christ has been perfectly obedient. Where we have struggled and we have sinned, Christ has succeeded and overcome and defeated and conquered. I thank You, Lord, that we won't stand before You one day with a resume in our hands of what we did good and what we did bad, hoping that somehow our good outweighs our bad. The only work that will determine our salvation is the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, help us to trust in Christ this morning. I pray, God, for those who have struggled, perhaps are struggling in this area of faithfulness in their marriage, Father, that they would walk out of here today cleansed because they repented and trusted in You. I pray for those today, Lord, who are struggling in their relationship with You and their faithfulness to You and to Your Word, that they would walk out of here today cleansed because they would repent and would trust in You and Your Word. I pray for all of us, Lord, and thank You that You are the faithful husband, that You are the faithful groom that You have rescued us and delivered us from our adulterous ways. So Father, help us to walk now in the truth. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.